Why don't we stand and read uh, Paul's letter to Corinth? Does any of you, uh, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? If the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more matters of this life? So if you have the law courts dealing with matters of this life, do you appoint them as judges who are of no account in the church? I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is among you one wise man who will be able to decide between his brethren? But brother goes to law with brother, and that before unbelievers. Actually then, it's already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? On the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud. You do this even to your own brethren. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived that if fornicators, idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminates, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. Such are some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of God. Please be seated. All right, how many, by the show of hands, have watched or are familiar with uh, Judge Judy? Only one person will admit it, even if they have. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Judge Judy. Judge Judy was a show that I used to watch quite a bit uh, a few years ago, and uh, she uh, that show kind of entertained me because uh, um, I found it very interesting. I used to enjoy the different characters that sort of came on there, and was sort of surprised by all the varying disputes that could happen and all the different ways it could occur within uh, you know the world and family context and whatnot. And my favorite part of the show, to be honest, was just her demeanor. I always was amazed by her straightforwardness and I kind of enjoyed how she could always sort of see who was lying. She kind of always had a knack for knowing who was telling the truth and who didn't. And when the people afterwards were interviewed, they never attacked her personally for her being wrong. It was interesting. Even when they were ruled against, they more or less just still accused the other person of doing them wrong. But she had an incredible sort of knack for that. But on the flip side, it was kind of a sad show. Because looking at it through God's eyes, uh, you realize just how much pride and selfishness and unforgiveness is there, there is in the world and how those kind of attributes just like destroy community and destroy life. But you'd expect that from the outside world. That's kind of par for the course. But what happens when lawsuits and, gr and grievances occur within the church context? What, are they, what do you do when they happen in the body of Christ? Well, that's the subject matter for today as we begin our first uh, series, sermon, ser uh, sermon in our series titled Life Lessons in, from Corinth. So let's dive in by reading verse 1. Paul says, Does any of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Several things I want to point out in this verse. Number one, I know I'm stating the obvious here, but... It's important to say that lawsuits and unresolved grievances can and may happen within the Christian community. The fact that he had to address it in Corinth meant that they're a reality. And this can happen, of course, in our church context as well. 
Now, of course, it's never our preferred choice nor the Lord's that this happens. But life in the church community, as you know, can unfortunately sometimes be messy as we don't always live in harmony with one another as brothers and sisters in the Lord. Hence why Paul's instruction here is so important. Second thing I want to point out, though, which is really important, is to gain clarity in the type of grievances that Paul's dealing with in Corinth. You see, they're not matters of clear-cut sin. What do I mean by that? Well, we know that in areas where someone breaks the law, the laws of the land, that God puts the government in place to deal with those matters. So, for example, if you're caught breaking and entering as a believer, or you're caught stealing something from a store, or you're doing tax evasion, God puts the governing authorities in place to deal with criminal matters against the laws of land. So, for example, Romans 13 and 1 Peter chapter 2 state that the governments are there to punish evil and reward those who do good, and that the, the government is God's sword. God's sword. So God uses the governing authorities to, to hand out justice when the law has been broken. So we're not dealing here with issues of clear-cut sin. Um, we're dealing with areas that are disputable matters. Where one person has a case against another, where both could be in the right. And when you hear the information up front, they both have a justifiable case. And so it's not always clear-cut who's in the right, and so it requires some, um, some judgment to be made. To solidify that we're not dealing uh, with clear-cut sin and rather disputable matters is also clear in verse 7. When he says to the church, why not rather be wronged, why not be defrauded, he would never say that if it was a sin issue, a clear-cut sin issue. Like if you broke and enter, he wouldn't say, well, just like, you know, why not rather be defrauded. That the, the law of the land would deal with this issue. So the issues where either could be right, and so you're just not sure how to like, judge correctly. So I have just a couple of examples, you know, just, just to maybe get an idea of what this might look like in our current context. Um, you know, let's say I'm doing some landscaping in my yard, and I know Mark has a chainsaw. And so I go to Mark and I say, hey Mark, can I borrow your chainsaw? He's got a steel one, like the S-T-I-H-L one. Not a steel one, but a steel one. And uh, for those of you who don't know, but anyway. Uh, but uh, he's got a steel chainsaw and it's worth like, you know, a thousand bucks or something like that. And so it works when he gives it to me. And I go into my yard and start cutting down trees. I give it back to him. And he goes to start it up a week later and it won't start. And he phones me and says, did you break my chainsaw? I said, not at all. It was working perfectly when I used it. And he goes, well, since I got it back, it's, it doesn't start. I've tried everything and it's broken. And when I gave it to you, it was perfectly fine. And so we get in dispute because he wants $1,000 to get his chainsaw paid back. Or let's say uh, I want to, someone in our church owns a business. And they own a tree business, like a landscaping business. And so... I want to plant trees now since I've cut down the trees that I've already had. <laughs> I don't know why I'd want to do that if I cut them down, but let's just, just work with me here. But anyway, so I go and buy some trees and I plant them. Two weeks later, they all die. And so I go back to my Christian brother and sister and say, hey, those trees I bought from you and spent, you know, $25,000 for or whatever, um, I went and paid all, for all those trees and they're dead. And, the, and, the, and my fellow brother or sister would say, well, they were perfectly fine in my nursery. There was not a single issue with those trees. They've been in there, and I've had them for like two months. Perfectly alive. You must have done something. And we end up in a dispute. 
So the question in that case is who's right and who's wrong and how do you judge these matters? Which leads to the third and most important point in observation in verse 1. What Paul was really stressed about in here was how the Corinthians were dealing with these disputes. How they were dealing with them. You see, the issue was they were not handling them within the Christian community. They were not seeking a wise person or wise people to deal with the issue. They were going outside of the church and going into the secular world, into the secular court systems. You pick this up in verse 1. He says, does any of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? So what's Paul's response to this? Well, to say he was not pleased is an understatement. He says in verse 1, how dare you? How dare you? How dare you as Christians, as believers in Christ, go to the law courts and not your own people. So this was not a strong, a gentle rebuke. This was a stern and strong reprimand. But what's really interesting in this passage, church, is how he seeks to correct their thinking and make them see the error in their ways. And we pick this up in verses 2 through 4. He says, Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? If the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more matters of this life? So if you have the law courts dealing with matters of this life, do you appoint them as judges who are now of no, no account in the church? What Paul does here to demonstrate how the church in Corinth has everything in reverse order is he appeals to the eschatological realities of being a follower of Jesus. Big fancy word, let me make it very simple. But he appeals to the eschatological realities of being a follower. In the Greek definition of eschatology, eschatos means last. Logi means the study of. So eschatology is the study of the last things. Now, in the followers of Christ understand this to be the final events of history before and at the second coming of Christ where death and judgment and the final destiny of humanity is determined. Again, it all centers around the second coming of Christ. And so Paul points to two realities. He says, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Now, how we're going to be involved in the judgment, I'm not totally sure. But all we know from Paul here is that we are. And so let's look at a couple passages that speak about this. In Revelation 2.26, to the one who is a victorious and does not does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. That one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery. Just as I have received authority from my Father, I will give that one the morning star. So saints are involved in the judging of the nations at the second coming of Christ. So if this is the case, Paul's point can't be any more clear. He's saying this, Corinthians, if at the end of the age you're going to stand in judgment over the unbelieving world, why on earth would you turn around and have those same people judge over you? <laughs> it makes no sense. Think of the magnitude of the end of time's judgment, and yet in simple matters of this life, you're having these earthly judges rule over you. And he says, you've got this whole thing backwards. Secondly, he says, will be involved in the judging of angels. 
the judging of angels. So no, no doubt this is the demonic realm because the God's realm of, the, of the, those who follow him don't need to be judged. Now again, how is this going to look? How are we involved in the judging of angels? We don't know, but we, perhaps in Jude 6 we see that there might be a place for us here. It says in uh, Jude 6, And the angels who did not keep their positions of authority, but abandoned their proper abode, sorry, pro- abandoned their proper dwelling, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. So likely what he's talking about here is the uh, angels in, in Genesis um, before the days of Noah. That's likely who he's talking about. But if in this case, somehow, they're going to be judged. And if this is what um, Paul's referring to, somehow we're involved in judging the demonic world at the end of time. But again, Paul's point is very clear. He's like this. He says this. Not only are you going to be given authority to judge this world, but you're given authority to judge the spiritual realm as well. You're going to have authority over beings who are in many ways like even superior to you. And if this is the case, then why aren't you handling your own cases on this earth, which are ordinary and mundane in comparison, within your church community? And instead, you're appointing judges who he says in verse 4 are of no account in the church. Now, this was not a derogatory statement against being a judge. It It wasn't sinful in itself to be a judge. But he was saying, why would you go to these guys? Because they're void of God's truth. You know, they don't have the Holy Spirit guiding them. They don't think like you in church matters and how to think like a believer in making judgments. So why are you going to them? I like what Ben Witherington said. He's a professor from Asbury Seminary in Kentucky who I was fortunate enough to meet uh, one day a few years ago. And I had a one-on-one conversation with him. And he said this in his commentary. "Uh, The Corinthian problem arose not just from bad ethics or social values, but from bad theology which affected their worldly affairs and their decision-making. And what did Paul think of all this? Because they were doing this and were going to unrighteous courts instead of having it done inside the church family. He says, basically, I'm ashamed of you for doing this. Look at verse 5. I say this to your shame. You know, church, there's a lesson, though, here I want to pull out beyond the message to what to do in terms of lawsuits between believers. It's interesting that he says this, that uh, to help you with life in this present age, think about the future judgments and how you're involved in that. I had the privilege of being your pastor, and that means being involved in your lives. And so I do get the occasional phone call or the occasional meeting when you share your heart with me. And what I've heard a lot in the last 15 months is, I'm scared, I'm hurting, I'm depressed, I keep crying, I don't know what to make of this world, it's a crazy place. And so it's bananas out there, and it's bringing you down. Let me read these words to you again. For those of you who wonder, what do I do with this unrighteous world? And what do I do with the people that seem to be set up against the the people of God? How do I handle this? Listen to Paul's words very carefully. Do you not know that you will judge the world? 
And do you not know that you're going to judge angels? You stay the course. You persevere. You keep going. You follow the Lord. And one day you will take your seat in judgment over the very people that you're frustrated with right now. Amen. So let's get back to the text. Now, we've already said Paul thought this was shameful, the fact that they had gone this far. That's what he said. It says, this is to your shame that you've gone this way. But then he asks him a question. He says this in verse 5. Is it so that there is not among you one wise man who will be able to decide between his brethren? But brother goes to law with brother, and that before unbelievers. That before unbelievers. Now, every commentary I read in my preparation said this, that when Paul asked them, is there not one wise man among you, that it was meant in sarcasm. It was a sarcastic question, and designed to put it in their place. And the reason is, is because wisdom was something important to Corinth. In chapters 1 and 2, if you go to chapters 1 and 2 and circle every time you see the word wisdom, it comes up numerous times. And chapter 1, verse 22 is key. It says this, Jews ask for signs, Greeks search for wisdom. So wisdom is important to Corinth. It's a spiritual leg up if you're considered wise. Now, so when he asked the question, is there not one wise man among you? It was basically a, a slant against them to say, hey, <laughs> you failed to settle disputes amongst yourselves and relied on secular courts. And you've forgotten your position in light of eternity in terms of who's judging who. And so basically Paul's doing this to basically say, uh, you know, how foolish you are as opposed to being how wise. Now maybe this is the case and Paul intended it to be fully sarcastic. And I can handle that. At the same time though, I do want to say this, that it was definitely rhetorical. It was definitely a rhetorical question. He did want a wise man to judge between them. Remember his problem in the first place? His problem was this. You have gone to the law courts that are secular and not to the Christian community. You haven't done this. If they'd gone to the Christian community, that would have been a, a, a better option, but they failed to do so. So he actually was saying that you should go to a wise man if you can't settle disputes on your own. So again, Paul was saying to have a wise man intervene was clearly the preferred choice of action over and above going to secular courts. And you know, I'm grateful for being in this church because I know that uh, when I've run into situations here, I've been able to seek counsel. Um, I might share this with you later if need be, but I was involved in a kind of a litigation process with a non-Christian. It's a little bit different, but... I was able to go to our men's group and say, hey, what do you think I should do based on the circumstances I'm facing? The counsel I was given was taken. I took their counsel and it worked out awesome in my, well, in my favor in terms of resolving peace and so on and so forth. So again, I'm grateful to Genesis House for the men that are here and how they helped me through my issues. But Paul's biggest concern in verse 6 actually is that their brothers taking brother to court before unbelievers. That's what he says in 6. The issue is brother goes to law with brother and that before unbelievers. Now Paul doesn't spell out why he's so stressed about this. 
but I think it's pretty safe to say that his biggest concern was their witness to the world. When we look at Paul's heart through all of his letters, what's his number one priority? The present, like the, the gospel message is preached and that Christians are living in accordance with what Jesus taught. He cares about salvation and sanctification, all these things, all the time. So think about this now, okay? So let's, 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 let's play, practically play this out. So Evan, Evan and I, I hire him to do some electrical work at my house or I hire him to fix my dishwasher or whatever. Now he's changed jobs. Okay, so I hire him. And um, he's got his own company, works for himself. And we have an issue. But the work he does fails to work and he won't, you know, replace the part. And he won't do any extra labor without charging me again. And I think he should fix it for free because he didn't fix it right the first time. And we end up in court. And we end up at court down here on, uh, you know, on Elma Street, or whatever it is, and we're standing there. And so the judge just says, uh, just uh, curious, uh, how do you fellows know each other? Wow, you know each other from church. Which church do you go to? Genesis House. Oh, you mean the one like uh, that meets in the Arctic or buildings down from here? Yeah, that's where we meet. I thought you guys taught about... Uh, unforgiveness at your church and self-sacrificial love and about mercy and all these things well you know we, we do but we just don't do it ourselves <laughs> how likely is that judge going to end up at Genesis house with watching two of us having disputes with one another standing in this courtroom take a miracle of God <laughs> to get him in our doors you see why he cares that brother goes to court with brother and not before unbelievers? And why in verse 7 he says this? Actually then, it's already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. He says instead, why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? What I like about this verse, actually then, it's already a defeat for you that, the, that you have lawsuits with one another is really cool. Here's why. What he's saying is this, even if you win the lawsuit, you still lost. You might win the money, you might win the case, but in God's eyes and in the church's eyes, you've lost. It's already a defeat for you, there's a lawsuit. And why is this important? Because you want to win when you go to court. And Paul says, it doesn't matter if you win, you still lost. Why? Because you've lost the spiritual battle. You've lost the moral battle. The church has brought into disrepute and you've completely missed how to live as a follower of Christ. Pride and arrogance and unforgiveness have taken root and that's why you're there. And so Paul says, why not rather be wronged and defrauded? Now the word uh, wrong, the word wrong in Greek is to injure someone or to act unjustly. It's used in Matthew 20 and verse 13. It's talking there about a boss who Basically, um, well, the employee thinks the boss has paid him unfairly based on the work he's done. The word defraud means to deprive someone in some way. It's to cheat or rob someone out of what is rightfully theirs. In James 5.4, the word is used, speaking of a landowner who's withheld wages from a laborer who had taken care of his fields. So, what's key here is that 
What Paul's asking for is an expectation from believers that it's better to endure wrongs than seek retribution. He's calling the church to mercy and not justice. To withhold um, punishment for someone when it's in your power to do so. You know what he's calling us to? The way of the cross. The way of the cross. Consider 1 Peter. Listen to this. For God called you to do good, even if it means suffering, just as Christ suffered for you. He is your example, and you must follow in his steps. He never sinned, nor ever deceived anyone. He did not retaliate when he was insulted, nor threaten revenge when he suffered. He left his case in the hands of God, who always judges fairly. I could imagine someone saying in the Corinthian church, just like they would in our church, Yeah, but... All the yabbats come out of the forest. Yeah, but uh, you don't know what he did to me. Yeah, but you don't know how much he cost me and sent me back financially. Yeah, but you don't know the stress that's been on my family and how many sleepless nights I have. And Paul says, Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? Because that's exactly what happened to your Savior. On account of you. You know what this means, church? In a world full of where your rights are supposed to be met and matter, he's saying, You give up your right. You give up your rights. You give up your rights for self protection. You give up your rights for self gain. Self gain. I want to read from you, from Fee, Gordon Fee, phenomenal Bible teacher, professor at Regent College. I think he's retired now. You know how I went back to eschatology being a shaper of, uh, of how to handle like judgment in a church versus secular courts? He speaks about eschatology again, shaping how we live in this world of our rights and our freedoms. Listen to the power of his words. He's speaking about Paul's comment, why not rather be wrong, why not rather be defrauded? He says this, The difficulties with our hearing this text are related primarily to our general lack of a biblical understanding, especially in terms of the essential eschatological framework of our existence as the people of the future who are to be totally conditioned by that future as we live in this present. Therefore, our priorities tend to be warped toward the values of this age rather than the age to come. Here we have great need of deep reformation. Most legal actions on the part of Christians are predicated on rights and the pursuit of property in this present age. Until our thinking um, is genuinely overhauled on these matters, our approach to the text will be one of neglect. That's so good. The reason why you want your rights always met and you won't be wrong and you won't be defrauded is because you're focused on this life and this world. Jesus left that in the hands of God who always judges fairly. By enduring undeserved injury, we enter into the real meaning of the cross. 
The problem for the Corinthians was they weren't enduring this. Instead, they were inflicting this. Look at verse 8. But, sorry, that's wrong verse. Verse 8, on the contrary, on the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud. You do this even to your own brethren. So Paul has to give them a warning. Verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminates, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. You need to be a trumpet player to get that out in one, in one blow. Okay, here's what's important about this. He's linking verse 9 with what he said in verse 8. When he says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Who is he speaking to? The Corinthians in verse 8. This is acting as a warning. If you continue down this path, Corinthians, if you continue, do you not know that you will not inherit the kingdom of God? Look at what Fee says again. This is brilliant. I can't, he says it better than me. Paul's point in all this is to warn the saints, not only the man who has wronged his brother, but the whole community, that if they persist in the same evils as the unrighteous, they are in the same danger of not inheriting the kingdom. Some theologies have great difficulties with such warnings. I know they do, because I have had many debates. And I used to be one of these guys who was... The truth of God's word changed me. Implying that they are essentially hypothetical since God's children cannot be disinherited. But such a theology fails to take seriously the genuine tension of texts like this one. By persisting in the same behavior as those already destined for judgment, they are placing themselves in the very real danger of the same judgment. If this is not so, then the warning is really no warning at all. This is why Paul tells the Corinthians in verse 9 not to be deceived. How would you get deceived? How would you get deceived? The only way you would get deceived is that you think that because you started by... By, by, by faith in Christ, by His work, or by His righteousness alone, that that would give you a license to live how you want. And Paul says, Are you, you've missed the gospel. You don't abandon Christ in terms of how you live and live for yourself. You live for how He teaches you and how He wants you to live as a love expression for what He does. So salvation starts with the works of Christ, but you have a role to play in whether you persevere to the end or not. This speaks volumes to our churches today in North America that think that their child prayed a sinner's prayer at five years old and they're good with God and they're living totally contrary to His ways. Or why they think baptism is necessary to help someone get saved. They make salvation into a formula, a one-time event. That's not the way the New Testament teaches salvation. Paul says how you live matters. Now, some get very uncomfortable and say, well, you saying if I sin once or twice, I'm out? Not at all. A couple observations from the text make this clear. 
Look at how he uses the plural form of the, of the words. He doesn't say, if you fornicated once, you're out. If you were an idolater once, you're out. He says, fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, plural, plural, plural. This is what they're practicing. They're known for this. Galatians 5 and 6 in the same text say the exact same thing. Those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom. He's speaking to the Christian church here, not the unbelievers. This is so important. That's how you get deceived. Because you think you're good with God and you're walking in danger with Him. But why would someone practice this in the first place? Why would someone abandon the Lord and His commands? Well, why would, or sort of say, why would this be an issue for the Lord? Why does your, how do we live matter? Well, it's because the way we live reveals what we truly think about Jesus Christ. Dennis Kinlaw, another professor I got to meet in Asbury Seminary just when I was visiting there, said this, we change our lives to match the person we love. If you love your children, you change your life to try to accommodate their desires. If you love your wife, you seek to meet her interests on her terms. If you love your husband, you seek to meet his interests on his terms. If you love Jesus, you try to match him in terms of what he likes and what he loves. This is why Jesus himself said in John 14, 23, if you love me, you will obey my teachings. You match yourself to the one you love. To embrace patterns of sin demonstrates that in these areas of life, you don't love Christ. Now, here's what's cool. When Paul gave this warning, he was not saying to the Corinthians, you're not in good standing with God, you're not Christians. He was simply saying this, if you continue down this pathway, you're in danger but he didn't write them off. Proof, verse 11. Such were some of you, but you are washed, but you are sanctified, but you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. He doesn't leave them in a state of hopelessness, but one of encouragement. And he uses three words to describe their spiritual state. He says this, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. What he's doing is reminding them of their current spiritual status in Christ. So if the Corinthians were to die that morning, in this state, in God's mercy, they would go to glory. Because he says, you were them. At the same time, in the verses before, he's warning them, if you continue down this path, now that I've warned you, and now that you know better, if you continue down this path and refuse my counsel as an apostle, as a spokesperson for the Lord, there's, there's danger. So he's not lumping them in with the unrighteous. Their righteousness was based on the merits of Jesus Christ and what he did for them. But what he was doing was exhorting them to live out this new reality in Christ and embrace the life he intended for them. So what are we to learn from this passage? Without... You know, well, well stated in the obvious. <laughs> Lawsuits and unresolved grievances can and may happen within the church family. 
Is it God's preference? Of course not. Is it our preference? Of course not. But unfortunately, like I said, there are times when pride and all sorts of things get put a hold of us and we just pursue things that are contrary to the Lord's ways. So here's the next lesson then. What happens if they do? What should we do about this? Disputes amongst believers should be handled within the church family and not the secular courts. Now, I will make this declaration. Paul does not talk about what to do when a secular person goes to court with a Christian or when um, two secular people go to court because this is not his focus. He's dealing with an in-house matter. But there are principles, I think, that we could still apply to how we deal with these situations if that were to happen to us. I was potentially almost taken to court by a non-believer a few years ago uh, in my gym. The principles would still apply in many cases. But Paul's clear. He doesn't want to get to this point. Um, but if they do, you're to bring them before wise counsel in verse 5. And of course, why it matters? Because our witness and testimony is critical. Bevan and I stand in court in front of an unbelieving judge. That's no credibility to that judge. Handle them in church where we can look at people through Christ's eyes. Third lesson. Enduring wrong instead of seeking justice is to be to the, the Christian preferred course of action. Enduring wrong instead of seeking justice is to be the believer's preferred course of action. Get rid of the yeah but list. Extend mercy, not seek justice. Follow in the pattern of the Lord. And what he did for you and me. Four, I like this one. Our future hope, eschatology, should shape our present reality in the way we live out our faith in Christ. The way to get them to see the ridiculousness of them going to, to uh, secular courts was to say, do you not know you're going to judge angels? Do you not know you're going to judge the world? He made them look to the future to, to direct their decisions in this lifetime. Gordon Fee in his commentary did a great job too in terms of considering whether to be right or wronged. Or to be wronged or defrauded, I should say. He said, if you consider the future and not look at the present age, you won't have to have your needs and rights always met. You can bypass those for the sake of the gospel and walk in Christ's footsteps. And finally, believers who embrace patterns of sin are in danger of not inheriting the kingdom of God and should be warned. Now the cool thing about the Corinthians, there was a warning, but he didn't call them not, not followers of Christ. He just said, he says, you're washed, you're sanctified, you're still good with God, but do not take his grace for granted. Do not think you can continue in this appearance before the secular courts and play that game with God. You don't play that Russian roulette with him. To love him is just to do his, obey his teachings right off the cuff. And you'll never end, your, end yourself up in trouble like this. <laughs> Amen.